Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 31. A Lover's Bind. The Psychoanalysis of Romantic Relationships. One couple fights over household responsibilities. Another is trapped in a cycle of jealousy and control. Still another strives for total harmony and oneness, only to be tormented by intense anxiety the moment small differences arise. With the help of the famous psychodynamic concept of collusion, this episode deals with the often conflictual relations between couples. We often encounter in romantic relationships the contours of our unconscious longings and fears, factors that are anchored in our personal history and that are decisive in the selection of a partner. Topics include the relationship dynamics of jealousy, narcissistic relationship dynamics, as well as helper dynamics. Among the greatest mysteries of the unconscious are surely those curious forces weaving together the fabric of romantic relationships. How do two people come together? What forms a lasting bond between them? And what causes the bonds to break? As experience shows, things are by no means as fortuitous as the romantic ideal of love would have us believe, for certain patterns tend to repeat themselves in our lives. Why? And how can relationships succeed? Certainly far too many questions for one podcast episode to answer. We want to focus here on some of the typical conflicts that many couples face. We will thus adopt a typology proposed by the psychoanalyst and systemic therapist Jörg Willis. When two people meet, for example on a date, not only do they check each other out with scrutinising glances, but also with the unconscious. Psychoanalytically speaking, each individual's unconscious is in communication with the other, deciding on a nearly imperceptible level whether or to what extent they are interested in the other person. Without this unconscious match, there is no romantic relationship whereby what matches does not necessarily bring love and happiness, a point we will get to in a moment. This is not only a matter of who the other person really is, but also, and here comes the specific psychoanalytical point, a matter of what fantasies they arouse, what promises they hold, what we believe we see within. This point is not only about what the other person actually does, but also about how it makes us feel. What one person perceives as caring and protective may appear controlling and invasive to another. To some extent, the other person is always a product of our own perception. As a general rule, one could say that a relationship usually comes about when each partner sees in the other the hope of fulfilling some unconscious wish and, at the same time, the means of avoiding or resisting something as well. 
In every relationship, there is an element of longing and an element of defence. What this turns out to be is very different in every case. All basic inner conflicts are also expressed in our relationships, often in complementary ways, for instance, between one person who is more autonomous and another who is more dependent, one person who takes care of others and another who allows themselves to be taken care of, one person who seeks recognition or admiration and another who recognises and admires others. There are both progressive and regressive tendencies in every relationship. No matter how flourishing, every relationship is characterised by the fact that these roles are not assigned to a set partner, but will shift, at least as time goes on. As in the following example, a young woman and a young man get to know each other shortly after graduating from school. At first, the woman is in awe of the young man, who demonstrates great self-confidence, has a large circle of friends, is bold, radiates strength and dominance. On the part of the woman, who is perhaps still insecure, there is a longing to overcome some of her own insecurities, perhaps coupled with the fantasy that this is the perfect man to help her, to become a whole woman and be able to stand on her own. On the part of the man, there is a longing to be admired and recognised, maybe because he is not quite as confident as he appears to be from the outside. The two become a couple. Over time, the woman evolves, she becomes more self-confident, develops a feeling for what she is capable of, maybe even manages to become independent professionally. The decisive question for the partnership at this stage is whether the couple can embrace these changes, perhaps even foster them. Can the man recognise her, accept her strength, give her space and also admire her? Perhaps the young man has also evolved over time, which in his case means being able to accept some moments of insecurity, weakness and longing. To accept a position where he is dependent, desiring and adoring. Here the question is inverted. Can the woman still love, desire and find him attractive, even once he has given up some of his dominance and strength? If they succeed, the relationship will become a space in which they can develop, where their roles can change where both partners can allow progressive and regressive aspects of their personalities to unfold. And yes, certainly find greater satisfaction as well. Neurotic or blocked relationship dynamics, by contrast, are characterised by the inability or difficulty of breaking free from rigid roles and the recurrence of certain patterns that accompany them. For example, when both partners are too afraid of what might happen if they gave up on a particular role. Here, the term collusion refers to an unconscious interplay between the partners, where like a lock and key have fixed functions in the relationship. Collusion comes from the Latin word colludera, 
meaning to have a secret agreement and to play with, which often results in a collision, a clash. Within the dynamics of a couple's relationship, the specific purpose of collusion is to avoid certain areas of conflict or to manage some unresolved conflict, as in when one partner is nearly always dependent and the other independent, or when one is supposedly strong while the other supposedly weak. Yet it is only on the surface that this appears to be a satisfactory match, for no one can be happy if, to take up our example again, their personality cannot develop, they cannot build self-awareness and find their own strength. And likewise, no one can be happy if they are never allowed to be weak, if they always have to be the tough guy or the perfect woman. Increasingly frustration piles up on both sides, as does the feeling that an important part of one's personality is found lacking. For many couples, collusion is the underlying pattern beneath their relationship conflicts, whereby what often remains unconscious in the conflict is precisely one's own part in it, with each partner saying, I can't because of him or her. In his work, Jürgen Willi identifies an array of typical collusions, of which we will single out three in particular. Number 1. The Narcissistic Collusion Every relationship involves negotiating boundaries, not only the couple's boundaries to the outside, but also those inside the relationship. Being in love, being infatuated with one another, means the border between the partners has been nearly erased. Out of two becomes one. Everything is shared and body and emotions are fused. In this, there is also a deep longing to regress, to restore the lost state of absolute fusion still preserved in fantasy, to join together into an intoxicating fusion with one person, who means everything. During the phase of infatuation, the boundary to the outside is usually hardly permeable. Other people simply don't matter, and can feel quite excluded in the couple's presence, may even be quite annoyed that they are acting like a sealed-off block, with only eyes for each other. As time passes, however, this border usually becomes permeable again, without disappearing altogether. The couple then maintains meaningful relationships with third parties, while still being identifiable as a couple. The boundaries within the relationship, by contrast, once more become a bit clearer. Both partners maintain a being of their own, with their own autonomy, while still being related to each other. One could also say, boundaries that are rigid enough to hold something together and open enough to allow for development. Bound together through difference, while sustaining the development of the other. This is, perhaps, the dialectic of human intimacy. In narcissistic relationship dynamics, however, the question of demarcation is fundamentally conflict-ridden, and not only in the phase of infatuation, 
which, to some extent, is a normal narcissistic phenomenon. But from the perspective of narcissism, this means that the other person is supposed to be entirely at the service of oneself. More precisely, to become an extended part of the self, a mirror image that constantly confirms how good and loved one is. This is precisely where, as we heard in episode 27, the narcissistic wound is located. The narcissist seeks in his or her partner a narcissistic object that puts up no resistance, that does not irritate with anything of their own, and for whom he is the perfect ideal, adored, perfect, infallible, great. The message the narcissist sends about the relationship is, I want to become the ideal for which you surrender yourself. A narcissistic collusion emerges at the moment when the narcissist meets a partner who is looking for exactly this kind of ideal, or who is unconsciously attracted to relationships of this sort. They are what Vili calls complementary narcissists. The complementary narcissist often appears insecure, may struggle openly with a sense of inferiority, act rather passive and reserved, quickly adopting an altruistic position of caring for and being dominated by the narcissist. For these reasons, they may appear at first glance to be the victim of such an arrangement. Indeed, in the media, the narcissist is frequently characterized as the villain and their partner as the one suffering. However, usually it is not quite that simple. According to Villy, the personality structure of complementary narcissism is in fact also narcissistic, for it requires a very similar kind of fulfillment in the relationship, albeit inverted. For example, the complementary narcissist sees in the narcissist that which he or she cannot find within an ideal self, which, she hopes, can be achieved by becoming one with the narcissist. This often goes hand in hand with suppressed rescue fantasies, suffused with a distinctly narcissistic largesse. To be the one who has conquered the narcissist, or who can save him, who can show him what love truly is, who can release him from his suffering and intense nihilism. By seeking her ideal self in her partner's grandiosity, the complementary narcissist is ultimately using him as a narcissistic object, assigning him a specific role from which he is not allowed to break out. The complementary narcissist serves the narcissist and privately expects something in return, namely to become part of his greatness to be rewarded for all their sacrifices, and most of all, to be loved back by the narcissist as something indispensable and magnificent. Yet this is precisely what the narcissist cannot give. Ultimately, both narcissist and complementary narcissist are engaged in a manipulative relationship where one tries to exploit the other in the service of the self in which expectations are unconsciously built up again and again, only to be disappointed by the other person in the end. And indeed, 
there are often dynamics in which the allegedly weaker partner suddenly becomes totally dominant, while the allegedly stronger partner winds up in a helpless, groveling position. For instance, when the complementary narcissist threatens to break up with the narcissist, which, however, reactivates the rescue fantasies. The feeling of now finally being truly loved and needed, at which point the dynamic is reversed yet again. Now, to adapt our example with this in mind, let's say the relationship between the young man and the young woman is something like a teacher-student relationship. He is older than her, feels that he knows more, has more experience, can show and explain the world to her. As a result, the man does not have to confront his own insecurities and his deep vulnerability. The woman, on the other hand, enjoys being led. The ideal self her partner supplies appears to give her the strength to overcome the travails that her own development could present for her self-esteem. However, as the relationship progresses, the longing to find in the other one's ideal self gradually develops into a curse. The man is incessantly holding the woman down, remaining in the dominant role as if by default, treating her efforts to evolve like the trials of a small child, who is not to be taken seriously, and is certainly no match for him. He may praise her, but the hierarchy is clear. He is the teacher who knows best, and she the student who needs support. The more the partner tries to assert an independent self to set herself apart, the more fear arises in the man, reacting sometimes with aggression. The man may try to use verbal violence as a means of keeping the woman in an inferior position, devaluing her subtly, for example with disparaging nicknames, sometimes even quite overtly in front of everyone. Or he tries to always be one step ahead of the woman, to immediately outdo her, to declare for himself all that she wishes to become. The woman has started to do sports, and soon the man is going jogging as well, but at twice the speed, because she is not fulfilling his ideal relationship. She is not turning out to be the perfect mirror of himself. And so the young man increasingly becomes frustrated, angry, cynical. But the woman too feels an increasing sense of disappointment. She realises that she is not the man's saviour, that everything will remain as it is, that she is instead being used by the narcissist to stabilise his self-worth. Ultimately, the man and the relationship are not giving her what she was hoping for. But this is something that he cannot give her, for it can only be found in the development of a mature self and in a confrontation with the fears it brings up. And that is precisely what the relationship is enabling her to avoid. But precisely because she cannot develop her self-esteem, she unconsciously believes the man is needed to take her first steps. 
The teacher-student relationship keeps emerging in all kinds of everyday situations, not least because the woman unconsciously imposes the role on him. For example, the woman wants to apply for her dream job, but when she begins preparing her application, something inhibits her. At a loss as to how to present herself favourably, she doesn't manage to finish the application. The whole thing seems to be a failure. The woman is devastated. The man feels pressure to salvage the situation, jumping in just before the deadline and taking it out of her hands entirely by writing the application himself. She gets the job, but at what price? Was it not actually the partner's doing? Did she really earn the job? Once again, another missed opportunity to develop a truly sustainable sense of self-worth. Something of her own. And the partner has once again been used to compensate for a lack of self-worth. The man, on the other hand, increasingly becomes fixed in the teacher role, which, lest we forget, he eagerly sought out to begin with. It is now he who is being used by his wife as the better part of herself. In the end, using her partner to boost her self-worth led to increasingly doubting her own self-worth. Number two, the helper collusion or the oral relationship dynamic. While narcissistic collusion is centred mainly around oneness and self-worth, the helper collusion is concerned primarily with the idea of caring for someone else or being cared for oneself. Here, one partner usually assumes the passive role of receiving care, while the other the active role of providing care. Frequently in the roles of the caregiver, who mothers, and the recipient, who is mothered. The partner receiving care is in a supposedly helpless position, may in fact be injured or sick, in need for whatever reason of someone else's attention to provide for them. Their plea in the relationship is, care for me for I am so needy. This pleading can be quite open and concrete, or at times invested with the charms of a small child, who begs and flatters, who doesn't know any better, who can't manage alone. Or it may be the mute cry of the suffering, faced with impossible chores and unbearable burdens, seemingly lost on their own, who may well be quite gifted intellectually, but would surely starve to death if not fed if their bread was not buttered for them. Here, too, a deep longing permeates this plea. To finally find the person who will provide for them completely, who will satisfy them, nurture them, something which, here expressed in the form of orality, can satisfy their hunger for good. This longing is often in response to a wound in one's personal history combined with deeply rooted frustration, dissatisfaction, even anger and greed. 
Now a helper collusion develops when this longing encounters someone drawn to just this sort of plea. In our example, the caregiver. Seemingly undemanding and modest, tireless and inexhaustible, the caregiver tries to provide the partner with food, money, warm sweaters, good advice, and always an open ear. Sometimes with warmth and comfort, sometimes fighting tirelessly for their welfare. This kind of attention practically encourages their neediness, binding them tightly. Unconsciously, however, both partners continue circling around the question of care, but here too, from opposite directions. The partner being cared for can fulfil their longing for affection, thereby managing to exempt themselves from any active, responsible role, which may frighten or frustrate them too much. The caregiver, on the other hand, can assume the mothering role fully, while avoiding to confront their own needs. Instead, one's own neediness is channelled into an active task, which finds gratification in the partner. Psychoanalytically, one also speaks of an altruistic surrender, in which the partner becomes a so-called self-object. The caregiver's own needs are in fact no less important than the partner, yet are too threatening, bring up fears of losing the self, of powerlessness and helplessness. Here again, pointing in most cases back to a wound in one's personal history. The caregiver fears being put into the passive role that they put the other person in, while fearing the compulsive power of their own needs at the same time. The caregiver feeds on the gratitude and dependence of the other, which is sometimes experienced as pleasurable. Pleasure, however, is what is increasingly missing from the intensification of the helper collusion. The recipient of care is given a lot, but not such that it permits growth and personal strength. Instead, the milk that is offered only inhibits and belittles. Simultaneously, guilt about taking so much from the caregiver piles up. Still, it is nearly impossible to come to the conclusion I don't want this attention anymore, or I'll do it on my own for now, for ultimately it threatens to lead to a loss of attachment. The helper collusion frequently leads to increasing polarisation. The recipient of care becomes even weaker, while at the same time even more demanding. But actually because they are so full of rage at the caregiver, and increasingly ungrateful as well. It is a fatal relationship dynamic. The more the caregiver gives, the less gratitude they receive. Indeed, the caregiver is also dissatisfied, invests more and more, with less and less in return. The caregiver's own neediness grows, Yet at the same time, the whole arrangement of the relationship is aimed at not being aware of that neediness. The caregiver cannot imagine being valuable to the partner in any other way than as a giver. The caregiver attempts to bind the partner, 
using care, and thus guilt. Neither can give the relationship a new direction. The caregiver increasingly strives to provide care, and yet is increasingly dissatisfied and critical of the partner, who cannot do anything right, while at the same time, practically forcing their mothering upon them, thus intensifying the cycle of dependency and dissatisfaction. A relationship dynamic which often culminates in illness, that is, unless it can be passed on to others, for example, onto one's own children, either because the recipient has become almost completely incapable of living without support, or because the frustration of the caregiver's needs finally breaks out as symptoms. Number three, autonomy control collusion, or relationship as power struggle. This relationship dynamic centers on the themes of control, autonomy, and dependency. Relationships and attachment are experienced more or less as a power relation, a person who rules and a person who is ruled, sometimes in the form of overt dominance, sometimes quite subtly, which too is often an attempt to control. The dominant person can only conceptualize their own autonomy in terms of the control and dependence of the other person. The dominated person, on the other hand, avoids autonomy, delegating it to someone else to make decisions, thereby unburdening themselves of their anxieties, while remaining locked in the dependent position. Part of themselves are concealed, kept secret, which only agitates the dominant one all the more, prompting further methods of control. A more rational form of control would, for example, be the idea of total openness, in which no secrets are kept and there is a right to know everything about the other person. What is true about the relationship between governments and so-called transparent citizens is also true about partnerships. Transparency is often no more than a means of keeping the other under control. The right to secrecy, to concealment, is perhaps the very foundation of what characterizes autonomy and individuality. In relationships, the power collusion can take on many shapes, as relationships of domination and the battle of the sexes, as sadomasochistic relationship dynamics, or so-called symmetrical collusions, these are relationships in which both partners are continuously fighting over the same conflicts in the same way, leading to a permanent power struggle in the relationship, in which both partners compete for their autonomy, while at the same time remaining strongly dependent on each other. And here, too, it is important to note the unconscious interplay often involved even if it may look from the outside, as if it benefits only one partner. Of course, this doesn't apply to relationships based on violence, in which the oppressed partner has no possibility of escape, for example, when a woman is forced by her family to marry. There is another collusion variant that, 
although somewhat more benign, is no less a matter of power, control, and autonomy. The so-called jealousy-infidelity collusion, which we will conclude with, as in the following example. Two women become a couple. Both lived alone for a long time and have been described by their friends as freedom-loving and very committed to their own autonomy. At the same time, there is a side to them that is quite fearful of separation and are therefore hesitant to settle down quickly into committed relationships. After some time, the following dynamic develops in their relationship. One partner increasingly adopts the role of infidelity. There may be a real affair, or there may only be suggestive hints, coming home late, taking hushed phone calls, or sending messages. This partner stands for autonomy in the relationship, insists on her independence, her own space, her right to secrecy, feels monitored by her partner, hemmed in, her freedom curtailed. And the other partner does in fact become increasingly controlling, adopting the role of jealousy. She stands for attachment in the relationship, is strongly driven by feelings of dependency and separation anxiety. The responsibility for the relationship seems to rest largely on her shoulders. She is sensible and has general morality on her side. She is troubled by her partner's desires for autonomy, desires that sound to her like a flimsy pretext. For what could her partner have to hide? At the same time, the only way she can imagine ensuring the bond, here the aspect of power, is by increasing control. She periodically calls the partner to find out where she is, is frequently prying and prodding, asking trick questions. And then, when the partner does in fact come home from work conspicuously late, she tells her off angrily or picks a fight over something else. Implicit in the relationship is the message, I have to be so controlling because you're so unfaithful. But it is precisely these attempts to control her that the partner's growing infidelity is a response to. The message she is sending, I have to be unfaithful, do things secretly, take my own space because you are so controlling and persecutory. The relationship dynamic results in collusion, with each partner pointing the finger at the other and saying, I would do it differently if it wasn't for her. Although this relationship dynamic is deeply conflictual and outsiders may always be expecting a breakup, both partners are deeply entangled with each other. Unconsciously, both partners need each other to be in precisely the position they are in, even though it produces a great deal of suffering. Through their opposing roles, each partner is enacting an inner conflict between autonomy and dependence. One partner appears to exclusively play the role of autonomy by avoiding attachment and dependency, which is what she fears while the other partner appears to play the role of attachment and dependency by avoiding autonomy, which is what she finds threatening. 
In reality, both partners have trouble reconciling autonomy and dependency in a dynamic relationship. To be free to enter into dependency and to find freedom through relations. On an unconscious level, however, each of the two partners is acting out the very aspect they are seeking to avoid. For the jealous one, for instance, in trying like an authoritarian ruler to take control of her partner, thus extending her own autonomy, even frequently resorting to unfaithful or amoral means in the process, as in secretly reading her cell phone messages. For the unfaithful one, on the other hand, through the immense power and control she has over her partner, through her infidelity, which also succeeds in creating a particularly close, albeit pathological, bond to the partner, through which her dependency can be felt. Every romantic relationship involves some form of collusion in some way or another, just as the issues of autonomy and dependency, care, self-worth, or identity are important in every relationship as well. Indeed, relationships are so often a site of conflict because they are simultaneously a place of longing. We expect relationships to liberate affects, transform alienation into authentic emotions, be the site of adventure and eroticism, while also a place of security and trust at the same time but also because relationships are frequently interwoven with longings deeply rooted in our personal history. To find a lost or never-before-seen paradise. To soothe an aching want, or to heal a wound. Healing oneself with love is no misguided ideal. For without love, there may be no psychology development whatsoever. But what is true in therapeutic relationships is also true in partnerships. Psychological transformation does not come about through avoidance or forceful compulsion, but does become possible when we face our fears in ways that do not harm us and through relationships that make us feel understood. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.